episode of The Rage, Beyond the Pages, where each week we'll be talking with our reporters and looking deeper into the stories of the Vermilion. As always, I'm your host, Brianne Hendricks. With me are my reporters, Melissa Watson, Morgan Fontenot, and George Clark. Thank you for joining us. So let's begin the week. Um, Melissa, you covered the mental health talk. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and tell us you know, who the talk was by, what the talk was like, how many people were there? Uh, yeah, so the talk was inside of the student union in the Atchafalaya Ballroom. For those of you don't, that don't know, that's a very large venue that we have on campus for talks and events. And it was pretty much filled with students. I believe that Greek organizations uh, earned some sort of points or something for going. I think they earned like uh, philanthropy points or something for like bringing mem members to events like this. So there were quite a bit of them in mass attending. Is this like real points? Like Gryffindor gets points? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it's like, I think it, it's credit. I think they get credit for it is what okay. I'm saying. I'm not sure exactly how the system works, but um, I think I think there was definitely an incentive for all of them to be there. I think it was some sort of credit that they get okay. because I mean, there was like uh, it, the entire Sigma Chi fraternity was there and uh, all kinds of sororities were there. And I was just like, huh, be, you know, it'd be unusual if all of them, just all the Greek organizations just happened to show up at the same time. Yeah, no, I think, they want points. Points for Gryffindor. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, and uh, the talk was by this guy called uh, Joshua Rivadol, and he currently writes for the Huffington Post. Oh, wow. And, and he's an actor based in New York City. And he, he uh, gave this talk mostly to talk about suicide prevention. Okay. It's kind of a hybrid of things. He says that he wrote this piece um, in 2011 called Kicking My Blue Jeans in the Butt, which is about um, sort of a, a comedic slash tragic blend, sort of telling the story of how he grew up in a rough house, having to go to this cult-like church and mm. doing all this stuff. And he, it is a musical theater performance. So he, yeah. does, he does do renditions of the church songs he had to sing. And it's funny, but also a little bit uncomfortable because it's <laughs> true. Um, and then, you know, he talks about his dad who abused him as a child and eventually the talk ends with his dad dying by suicide in his early 60s um, while he was in his late 20s, 27, I think. Wow. And it's That's so young. it's kind of jarring uh, to sit through because it, it, it kind of gives you whiplash because you're sitting through like kind of a goofy little thing where he's talking about being a theater kid and being in plays and being Danny Zuko in Greece and that's funny. Yeah. And then he hits you with, you know, oh, and then my dad started having alcoholism and oh, this happened mm. to me and I started having depression and my dad eventually killed himself. Um, Is this a talk that he goes to different colleges and gives or just with the, yes. with the, okay, so it's not just a UL thing? No, it's definitely not a UL thing. He said he wrote this and originally performed it in New York. I think that it evolved. Originally, it was just the musical theater piece. Yeah. And it's not just, he, it's not acting the entire time. He does go into interludes where he narrates about okay. stuff. But at the end, this whole talk, this whole spiel he gives about college and college is hard and you need to yeah. reach out. I feel like that got added on once he started speaking at schools. And um, I noticed on his PowerPoint presentation, he was part of something called the Impossible Project, which might be the organization Ooh. that sponsors his speaking. But my story is mostly just about him coming to you all and speaking, so. I, I mean, I assume he's with that organization. And Nami yeah. actually invited him to campus. So did uh, did you get anything out of it? Um, personally, yes, only because um, I had a friend recently die by suicide uh, a I'm couple weeks ago. I'm sorry to hear that. 
Yeah, and um, and so most, mostly my boyfriend's friend, but I knew him really well. And it was also interesting because he was involved in performance. And it was just interesting that this kind of tied in. And it was just like a performance about suicide prevention, like the following week. And it was interesting talking to students as well afterwards, because this seems to be an issue that touches so many people. Yeah. And is so common among people in our age group. Not that it's necessarily only common in the sense that we all are depressed, but that we all know people who are depressed. Yeah. And that we all have connections to dying by suicide, to depression, to anxiety. And that's why he made it, he made the talk less about like, if you feel depressed, you need to reach out for help. He said, he sort of tried to groom us to be like advocates for getting help. And he kind of related it to physical health. He said that mm -hmm. mental health is just as important as physical health. And that if you had a disease physically, you would seek medical yep. help for it. And the same thing has to be said for depression and I completely anxiety. agree. I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I take uh, medications for my anxiety and it, I feel 100% better. It, it balances a chemical imbalance. And that's how we need to look at mental health issues is not, oh, there's, you know, oh, there's something wrong with you. You're taking, you're taking mental health pills. No, it's a disease that needs to be fixed. Exactly. And mental health when untreated is what breeds alcoholism, yeah. uh, drug addiction, yep. <laughs> uh, abuse, all of these things that our society faces in mass, especially among older generations that maybe didn't have as much access to mental health help as we do. Mm -hmm. um, you definitely see that prevalent among their age group. And another thing that he touched on that I found really interesting is that he touched on masculinity in uh, mental health, which I was so happy that he touched on because that's such a big problem. No one talks about it. He said, and he was sitting there in front of all of these frat guys, <laughs> and he said, you need to uh, understand that men have a problem when it comes to reaching out for help and that they disproportionately suffer from mental health issues and depression and they're taught to keep it inside and not to express it at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I agree completely. Uh, I know in my family personally and in a lot of my friends' families, you know, the, the boys were never supposed to... I mean, it was, it was always kind of implied that if you were crying or showing emotion or, you know, you had to be like the, the strong one and not break down at any point, which is nonsense because everyone should be breaking down all the time. <laughs> um, and I think that expectation that men and boys are not supposed to be feeling things and that they have to, you know, barricade that away and only react through aggression is incredibly harmful to everyone involved. And um, I actually ended up talking to a frat guy and this is going to be my final point, but I ended, I ended up talking to a frat guy afterwards and it was really interesting. I came up to him and I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Melissa with the Vermilion and he started running and I was like, no, um, I'm actually only here to talk to you about this mental health talk. And he was like, oh, great. And he was a freshman in Sigma Chi and he was talking to me and he, he I asked him about the masculinity thing and he completely agreed. And he said that that is a huge problem among, among guys and that they do need to reach out to each other for help. and. They do need to open up about these emotional issues more, especially especially in the sense of the talk. I mean, the guy said that his dad died by suicide, but his grandfather, his, his dad's father, mm -hmm. also died by suicide. Wow. So it's like a trend among the men in his family. And he said that 
whenever his dad died by suicide, he made a promise to him at, at the funeral that he would never, he would never do that. And then he said, but I never knew how hard that would be. Oh, wow. So it's, you know, it, it, it brings us talk about is this, and it is proven to be hereditary, mm -hmm. but also is this just something that is kind of passed down among men who expect too much um, toughness from their young sons and then breed mm -hmm. further damage later The way on. you raise them. The way you're raised, exactly. So also, you went to the SGA meeting tonight, and uh, for our listeners that don't know, tonight was the first town hall meeting yes, for Yes, the first, yeah. first one ever. First town hall meeting ever, so please tell us how that went. It was, it was interesting. Um, the conversation was generally monopolized about parking on campus, which has been a huge issue lately. And students didn't necessarily go up and talk. They turned in index cards with questions on it so okay. that they could be anonymous, which I have mixed feelings about. For one, one hand, I really wanted to hear students yeah, speak about <laughs> issues. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, they, a lot of them probably wouldn't have said anything. The central issue that's come up lately is, and Aaron, Aaron did a story on this, is that parking and transit has had this rule in place, according to SGA, it's been in place since 2011, that after 3 p.m. you will get ticketed if you don't have a night, if you don't have a, a special pass to be in a parking spot called a night pass, it's like $25 a semester or something. And yeah. uh, I think starting at 4.30, they let you park on campus with the night pass and then the tickets end at 9 p.m. But- <laughs> Of course, it's parking. For years, they stopped giving tickets at five, which is what I was told was the policy mm -hmm. as a freshman. And which seems logical because most organizations meet around five on campus. Yeah. And that's like the main thing is like the argument that students is, are making is UL preaches this whole agenda of having students get involved, mm -hmm. be on campus, stay after class, be in campus organizations, but then they hand you a $50 ticket. Yeah, where are $100, $100 ticket for trying to park next to your meeting. It's not like you're parking there to loiter. I mean, you're going to do stuff. And well, don't the buses stop at like six o'clock? And then, and then that's another thing that came up in the meeting is that there's a night shuttle service. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one girl who is pretty uh, passionate about the fact that she has a night class and she, she likes the night pass policy because of her night class and that's fine. She, she talked about the shuttle service and she's like, plus students, even though I park right next to my class, students get to use the night shuttle if they want, even if they don't park. And all of these girls started talking about how they waited one hour, two hours for the shuttle. Oh, the shuttle wow. doesn't answer the phone. They're sitting in front of Agnes Edwards, waiting for a shuttle in the middle of the night, scared to death. Oh my god! And I thought that was that was a really interesting thing. Is well, why doesn't the shuttle answer their phone? And SGA said that they would talk to them. That they're trying to talk to parking and transit. Another thing that's huge in this whole debate, you know, besides. Uh, the shuttle's not running properly, is infrastructure. And there's a really big controversy that's come up because UL is going to build a complex of luxury apartments yeah. near campus that will only apparently worsen the parking problem. <laughs> a lot of students are making the argument that why, why build luxury apartments when you could build a parking tower, when you can build more parking lots. I know the luxury apartments are was kind of controversial because the school is mostly commuters and they're adding more, yeah, more dorms that, I mean, I don't even know if they're gonna fill. Exactly, and the arguments made, there were several uh, SGA members that argued in favor of building the, the luxury apartments, and they, Jacob Lemonnier, the chief of staff, and Dylan Hebert, who's a education senator, were both arguing that 
One, it's too complicated and expensive for the university to build more parking for students. That was their argument. And essentially, they, they were more specific about it. And that, uh, and then Jacob Lemonnier argued that the luxury apartments bring in revenue, which is going to make our university improve because people are going to rent out the luxury apartments. And uh, Ross Albritton and Reese Walker, uh, the Senate chair and the treasurer, respectively, also argued that parking towers are too hard to keep up with, that parking towers fall apart, that they need maintenance, that they cost money, that they are a lot to deal with. Yada, yada, yada. The Dean of Students was also there, Margarita Perez. She said that in a parking tower, every single parking spot cost the university $22,000. And whenever she said that, it caused quite a stir behind me because I think a lot of the SGA members were thinking, how expensive is it to build a complex of luxury apartments? Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, we pay a lot in tuition. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel like that was something that really wasn't said and it really, really disappointed me because I don't speak. That's my number one rule is I don't say anything at the SGA meetings because yeah, I'm an observer of what's happening. I don't want to add to my own story. That's not what's yeah. supposed to happen. But I just wish someone would have said something about tuition because they're talking about how expensive all this stuff is, but we're paying for it yeah. in the end. Um, and not even to mention that with like the, uh, the Gerard Park Tower... It's like $10 a day to park there. Yeah. That's like, that's an insane amount of money. Yeah. When you think of how many people are parking there every single day, you can't tell me that that parking tower is not making money. And look, and I know that, I know that they're making these arguments based on fact, and I know parking and transit is probably having a really rough time trying to figure out the parking situation. There are a lot of people that go to this university that are commuters and that do need to park somewhere near campus. Um, and I think, I think the most interesting thing that came up among all of these issues, besides all of the money, because that's all stuff that's kind of out of our control, mm-hmm. was stuff that SGA could, could advocate for to parking and transit. A lot of women in attendance, uh, women who are not only sitting in the audience as students, but members of SGA, like Ali Domingue, who's the education president, said that they don't feel safe walking far distances to parking spots. I surely don't. That's why I park near here on production night. It's it's completely nerve wracking to walk around campus at night because there are no lights. It is mm-hmm. really dark. Yeah. And they said that at Cajun Field, whenever they get dropped off by the by the shuttle, that's two hours late apparently, they don't have any lights near their cars. And mm-hmm. and that's, that's a huge issue. And whenever they said that, um, and this was an interesting point. I'm sure he's a great guy. It was just a really awkward point in the meeting. <laughs> Dylan Bear decided to jump back in. And he said that the cops have a service where they can escort you to your car, which is true and should be used by students. And he followed that up with, they're not really doing much anyway. <laughs> oh. <laughs> which, okay. for those of you who don't okay. know, I also do the police reports for, um, for uh, every week at the Vermilion. I guarantee you the cops do quite a bit on a nightly basis. There's a lot going on on campus that we don't know about thanks to them. Uh, and it's, or I know I have to know about it, but we don't have to, we don't have to suffer with it. We don't have to deal with these, with these people who are intoxicated that wander onto campus mm-hmm. because they take care of it. And I just thought that was, a, that was an interesting thing to, ta- to say because the police force here at UL surely can't take on every single female student that needs yeah. to walk to their car at night. Please. Something needs to be done about lighting and security. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could. Please regale our listeners on the uh, the odd police report we've had this week so they can get an idea of what the police force deals with on campus. Um, someone uh, was parked by Cafe Fleur de Lis, I think, 
a little bit later in the evening and someone put sugar in their gas tank. That was the odd report of this week. So this is what our policemen have to deal with. <laughs> so I also wanted to talk a little bit to George about the story that you did this week. Hi. <laughs> uh, I, did a, I did a story on uh, some allegations which have been surfacing uh, regarding the singer Borns, who uh, the only song of his I know is Electric Love, but that oh, song is, wow. yeah, that one. that's a big one. Um, but the story was really interesting to me uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, well, I ran across these, uh, this Twitter account uh, that has been collecting all of these allegations, kind of like developing this narrative. Really? All these, uh, basically the storyline is the singer born, she's I think 26 or 27 now, has been, um, the allegations are that he has been kind of manipulating and uh, persuading his young teenage fans to sleep with him on oh, tour around the world oh, and kind of gross. cultivating these 16 to 19 year old yes. girls to you know fly out and meet him somewhere and then oh my god it's awful um but that was, that's the bottom line but it grabbed me because he grew up in the same area that i was growing up at the same time in western michigan oh wow yeah he was the next town over he went to the community college in my town um so that that made this feel somehow a little more personal to me because yeah. like we knew all the same sites growing up and now he's you know out across the world um but and you're here and i'm here <laughs> so who's the real one <laughs> um, but also it was interesting because it's very eerily paralleling another story i'm working on um about a figure in our local music scene who's been doing almost the exact same thing but for upwards of 10 years kind wow. of cultivating impressionable girls and then using mm -hmm. his social status or social capital to persuade them into these really awful, manipulative, uh, exploitive uh, relationships. If you so, can even call them relationships. Exactly, yeah. It's a, there's so much uh, in it with you know power structures and exploitation. It's really awful. But um, the thing with, uh, with Borns is I think as of now there are five girls um, who have uh, sent in their screenshots of like Instagram messages or text messages oh. with him uh, where he's you know asking them for explicit videos and pictures and then their narratives uh, which they're supplying which tell us how they he basically cultivated them to feel dependent on him that, mm -hmm. uh, that he was their only source of validation in this and they didn't want to feel like they were being used or that they were you know that they really were being taken for a ride by this yeah. Guys, so then they would have to buy into that so that they wouldn't, you know, fall into crippling depression or whatever. And uh, psychologists call that grooming. Yes. For those yeah. of you who don't know. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of grooming happening uh, in these situations. Um, and uh, yeah, he would basically just like build up like these, this image in these girls' minds where he yeah. was like, you know, like this like godlike, you know, rock figure. Yeah. Who is. Uh, you know, more powerful than they are, exactly. has more influence than they have. Exactly, but also he was something I found interesting in this was that he would take time with each of these girls to make them think that they meant something to him. So between his shows, he would that's the manipulation way. Them. Yeah, he would message them. He flew some of them, you know, to Europe to come and see him, and then he would uh, raped them. 
basically, oh and then flew them back home. Um, it was re- it's a really awful story, and it's only just I think the uh, the Twitter account was just just started posting these stories um, maybe a month ago, but the the accounts have been going back to two thousand two thousand eight, um, wow. and it's just been completely hushed up by you know his him and his PR people, I'm yeah. assuming, and then like everyone around him who's enabling him to get away with this. I am so proud of the Me Too movement that more women are coming out like that and saying something mm-hmm. of that, Absolutely. this is wrong, I was manipulated, this man was in a position of power, yeah. and feeling better about themselves so they can come out and say it. In situations like that, I'm sure 20 years ago, we wouldn't have heard anything. Exactly, yeah. Who's that guy? Uh, Ted, 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 Ted Nugent. Nugent. Ted Nugent. Oh, has, I was just joking. No, Ted Nugent has a song uh, called Jailbait, no. where he writes about a thirteen-year-old girl, and Very like, cool. yeah, it was. I think it was really common back then to like for rock stars to be attracted to like younger, young, yeah, girls. younger girls, and they have the money, and they have the influence, and they have the power over these people to create these groups where they can just sexually abuse young girls as long Mm -hmm. as they want and the thing that comes forward with the me too movement and with women coming forward is why they waited Mm -hmm. so long to come forward about this famous person like you just said 20 years ago we probably wouldn't have heard about it yeah 20 years ago we didn't hear about it and there's that's that's for reasons because it was 20 years ago yeah now it's 20 years later and the world's a different place kind of (laughs) and everyone kind of feels like they can express what happened to them and be taken seriously by at least 50% of people. Uh, I, I came out with the Me Too movement uh, about things that happened in my childhood and it, it was so liberating to get that out in the open that this happened to me and um, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And there are so many other women that it's also happened to. It's a lot more common than you think. Yeah, a lot more common than you think. And we the biggest thing for me is that we don't have to be silent anymore. Mm-hmm. Like these, like the women uh, with this artist, they don't have to be silent. Right. He has no power over them. Yeah, and it just makes you think, like, how many other artists are actually doing this too? Yeah. You know, because I mean, especially girls at that age, they're very, they're very vulnerable, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually like shocked, but I'm surprised. I'm I'm proud that they came out showing, you know, the evidence towards this, because a lot of girls that age, like. Would definitely not. They'd probably wait, you know, a couple yeah. of years. But I mean, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, uh, Kevin Spacey, all of these people are apparently doing horrible things. Mm-hmm. And right underneath our noses the whole yeah. time. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really glad that this movement has started and it's going in wonderful places. I actually covered a story this week. It's a completely different topic. But <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> I covered uh, the Legacy Gala with Kathleen Blanco this weekend. And uh, it was a really, really cool process to be there. So you're in this room surrounded by all of these political powerhouses from like the Democratic Party in the last 20 years. And you're just like, I guess I'll go up and walk and like talk to somebody. I had no idea how deep Blanco's ties to UL were. They are like, if there's ever been a UL family, is the Kathleen Blanco family. Like, they are the UL family. She was bipartisan whenever she was a governor. Uh, I didn't know she was our first woman governor. It took us all the way until 2004. Yeah. 
to get a, a we our first. Eighteen. We don't have a U.S. woman governor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had. I had. She was just. She's a really cool lady, and I felt very thankful to. Uh, I told. I, I know. I told you guys you earlier, Melissa. <laughs> Um, I usually as reporters we're supposed to go to people and ask them the, the hard questions and you know drill them and not show emotions and I walk up to Kathleen Blanco and I go oh my god it's because of people like you the reason why uh, we have two women that are the head of the Vermilion <laughs> I, I know I like, and then I like so I collect myself after <laughs> after I'm like please just email me stuff uh, yeah. <laughs> Please what she saying in response to that? <laughs> she uh, she was like, oh, yes, thank you, and uh, I'll definitely email you a statement. Aww. I walked up to Mary Landrew after, and I said, oh, my God, thank you for being a role model when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was like our U.S. senator yeah. whenever I was a kid. Yeah. It, was, it was really cool. John Bell Edwards was, was really chill. Um, I was also, I have to take a moment and brag about our uh, photo coordinator, LaShayla, we were both standing in the back for the the beginning of the gala because neither of us really knew what to do. And by the end of the gala, LaShayla was like up in Kathleen Blanco's face taking pictures. <laughs> and uh, you guys will see it this week in the front page, but uh, it came out really well. And I'm, I'm, I was really happy to go to the uh, the gala. I think, um, and I did a story on the- on The, the, the policy center. The policy center, that's, and this is all kind of interconnected, I think. Yeah. Um, the, they're opening a Kathleen Blanco public policy center uh, on campus. It's a third floor of the library. Third floor of the library. It's a conjoined mm-hmm. effort between the library and the political uh, and the liberal arts uh, college. Uh, probably mostly the political science department. That's why I slipped up um, to uh, to create this policy center for students to access to be able to um, kind of look through her archives and mm-hmm. see the kind of policy. Uh, situations that she had to face during her term, which kind of brings me to my next point, which what which I talked about in my article, and I kind of want to address this because I want to be balanced. Um, there is kind of a huge elephant in the room when it comes to Kathleen Blanca, which, is, which is Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of uh, different speculation around the situation with Hurricane Katrina, mostly, um, and a lot of us were too young uh, and didn't live in New Orleans whenever this happened, but basically. Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, the levees broke, the entire city flooded, people weren't able to get out of their homes, they weren't evacuated, there was no water, there was no food, they were all stuffed into into the Superdome, and a lot of people are trying to find out whose fault that was. Um, Democrats will tell you that it was George W. Bush and Michael Brown, uh, who were the president and the director of FEMA, respectively, during the time in Hurricane Katrina. FEMA is um, the disaster organization in in the United States. Um, but there's also people who say it was Ray Nagan, who was the mayor of New Orleans, and yeah. that Kathleen Blanco responded poorly to the disaster, that she was um, slow to respond, slow to bring emergency forces in, which a lot of academics that I've spoken to about this, including Pearson Cross in, this, in the uh, political science department, will say, no, 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 that's wrong. The, the, the situation's so messy, they haven't even really concluded what really happened yet. Yeah. It's all kind of a crazy thing. But believe me when I say that Kathleen Blanco shouldn't be their cherry, cherry he said they're cherry picking evidence. Yeah. Which I like that she was the first female governor that Louisiana had. Um, and I think, but I also think it's important to acknowledge that there's a lot of students on this campus that probably have resentment towards this figure 
because they probably got affected by Hurricane Katrina whenever they lived in New Orleans. A lot of people evacuated from New Orleans here. That's probably why they're going to college here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to acknowledge that, that whenever they build the center, that it's not a unanimous thing among students that they all love Kathleen Blanco and think that she should be on our campus represented in this way. One thing I thought that was really cool that she said, uh, she, she talked about the documents being given to the university. And she said, um, unlike other poli- other governors, I'm not at all afraid of what they'll find in those documents. Interesting. That's an interesting yep. thing to say. So she, uh, she said, full disclosure, uh, Billy Nugaser, the lieutenant governor, also gave a, uh, a speech at the event. And he talked about how um, if it wasn't for Blanco, the levees wouldn't have gotten rebuilt in his parish. I mean, I'm sure she, she is a, a controversial... A controversial figure mm-hmm. but I do hope that beyond the name the center really like I, I, I really hope they'll be it'll bring students to you all absolutely um so whew, I was also heavy okay <laughs> man finally tonight and thank god this one's a little bit lighter um Morgan did a story this week on an actor who is going to be in law and order is it special victims unit yes Yes, we have an alumni in Law and Order. Dun dun. Yeah, dun dun. <laughs> yeah, so I interviewed Bryce Romero, who is an alumnus of UL. He graduated in May of 2015 uh, in performing arts and with a concentration in theater. And he actually started his, like, I guess you could say acting career, like his mm-hmm. freshman year of college. He had no prior training coming into college. You know, uh, he said whenever he joined the performing arts program, he got like really influenced in, um, you know, theater and acting. So it kind of just took off from there. And while he was a student, he was actually doing some side acting. So uh, whenever he was in college, he did some background work on 21 Jump Street. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Yeah. Because there there is, for people that that don't, well, for listeners that don't know, uh, Louisiana has a very big film industry now. It's not as big as it used to be because a lot of taxes got cut in that area. But um, like I have an uncle that does sound and he, he's pretty much living in New Orleans now. Mm-hmm. He, they, they're filming things all the time between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. So mm-hmm. it's, I'm sure he did get some... Uh, yes, and that's one thing that he mentioned. Um, he was kind of discouraged at first because he said of where he's from. You know, like he yeah. always thought Los Angeles or, you know, New, New York, York City. Yeah. Like, that's how you be, you get big. But then, he like, as time went on, he realized, he said, actually said verbatim, New Orleans is a booming market. It, it which is. Which it is. It is. Um, so, actually, Bryce is living in New York City right now. He has been for almost a year now, and he really enjoys it. Um, Some of the roles that he actually played, he played in Maggie, which he got to uh, play with Abigail Breslin. I'm not sure if you know who she is, but he was- Yeah, Scream Queens. Yeah, so he actually got to um, share a kiss on the screen with her. He was their love interest. Scream Queens also filmed filmed in New Orleans. Okay, yeah. A lot of films that like, I don't even know about that I found out for uh, filmed in New Orleans. Um, and also Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, is that how you say his name? Schwarzenegger? It's how, it's how Americans say his name. Schwarzenegger. Uh, <laughs> however, yeah, I can't pronounce it, but uh, he got to play with him too. Um, the Terminator. <laughs> yeah, he played in two episodes of Scream, the TV series. Oh, that's cool. Uh huh. He played in the Maze Runner movies. He was Jack. 
Um, and this, the Law and R Order episode, uh, it's just one episode okay. that he's playing in, which the big thing about it is that this is the 20th season premiere. I actually did not realize oh, wow. that. So this Thursday, September 27th, is the 20th season premiere. It's a two-hour uh, special, and he is basically going to be the lead or the um well i asked him i said without giving too much information what can you tell me about you know the episode and he said he will be playing sam conway who's a 15 year old boy and he goes through a very traumatic event and it's something that it's it's a controversial topic but he's hoping it's gonna get people talking so that's pretty much all he told me so i'm really anxious to watch this episode that is so cool yeah we're I'm excited to, to hear about it and mm-hmm. see it. Uh, yeah, I, I like that you brought up like a lot of things that people didn't know are filmed here. Um, Jurassic Park or Jurassic World was filmed in the old Jazzland. Really? Yeah. They uh, they don't know what else to do with it, but movies going yeah. filmed there. Yeah, I think Pitch, I know Pitch Perfect was filmed in Baton Rouge. Yep. Um, Pitch Perfect, uh, Fantastic Four was filmed around here. Um, There's a lot of Hallmark movies that are filmed in oh, Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. Just so happened. I was uh, I was an extra in one of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, how is that? Find me in Christmas Cupid at fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Coming oh, to TV in November. A lot of uh, a lot of the sci-fi movies were filmed around here too. Yeah, I saw. Was there it, was um, one with Allison Hannigan. What's that from one? Your Swamp Shark. Swamp Swamp Shark, and then oh the one with that with the alligator. I forget what's alligator called. shark. Alligator <laughs> shark. Alligator <laughs> shark. I hope so. Oh Lord. Well, I guess uh, we'll wrap it up. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was edited by Lashayla Lumpkin, our photo coordinator.